After 25 years pastoring, I now work with biblical ministries worldwide. Uh, you can call us BMW. You'll remember that. Not, not the big one. Um, I drive a Yugo or a you know, Chevy or something, but uh, Biblical Ministries Worldwide. We were here last week doing uh, the Global Opportunities Week with uh, Afghan refugees and those things. And uh, now my primary calling is to promote missions. And uh, let me just say quickly, uh, I would love to try to help you get to a field, even between like your sophomore and junior year. Let's, let's find a place for you. And uh, to the degree we can help with that, that would be an honor. Uh, today, however, I'm um, representing ChurchWorks Media and kind of doing my, my not my primary job, but my hobby. And uh, the Lord's allowed us to publish a number of things, uh, devotionals, hymns, books. And the one we're talking about today is a book called Theology That Sticks. And uh, Dr. Pettit was kind enough to ask me to come and talk to you about that and basically the idea behind it. So turn your Bibles to Colossians chapter 3. Most of our time this morning is going to be kind of unpacking Colossians 3.16. It's not exactly a normal sermon, uh, but certainly rooted in the text, and I hope it will be an encouragement to you. Uh, today, between now, uh, after chapel and 1 o'clock, I'll be in the den and uh, brewing shop. Even if you're not planning to get something, just stop by and visit. It would be uh, enjoyable to have some time to talk with you. I want to talk to you this morning about the power of music. Um, everything I do, I'm, I'm listening to music. I call music the soundtrack of our lives. Uh, when I'm in the car, I usually have music playing. Or when I take a run, I have music playing. If I, if I run listening to a sermon or an audiobook, I run slowly. Uh, if I run listening to upbeat music, I run slowly. Uh, but I'm always putting something in my ears. Uh, during dinner time, uh, just, just always. And I have very eclectic music taste. I like classical music. Uh, I like organ music like that. Um, soundtracks are great. You know, Schindler's List is beautiful. Gabriel Zobo, you heard that. You need to. Um, How to Tame Your Dragon. There's, there's all kinds of great music. Um, I like Broadway music. And um, I like Sousa. I, I just love music, symphonic music. Uh, one of my great prides as a dad is teaching my daughters that the 80s was the greatest decade for music. So uh, we can debate that later if you'd like. Uh, not all music has to be Christian music, but Christian music is uniquely powerful because it not only reflects what we believe, but over time it actually shapes what we believe. And if we're listening to music that is really rooted in the scriptures, then it it sticks with us. That's why the book is called Theology That Sticks, because uh, most of us don't memorize sermons. Uh, you know, often I'll ask people, how many of you have ever memorized a doctrinal statement or creed? This is a bad place to use that illustration, because you've memorized the creed. Uh, but beyond that, you probably don't know a lot of doctrinal statements just by heart. Oh, but songs you do. We'll talk about that. Music is the soundtrack of our lives, and music is uniquely powerful. Uh, it, it moves us. It, it can actually affect our mood. And I don't think that's a terrible thing. It's, it's a great thing, but we need to use it kind of carefully and with caution. There's a man that writes uh, on philosophy of art and beauty named Jeremy Begbie. He says, in short, we do not simply make music. To some extent, music makes us. It, it leaves a mark on us. 
You know, I'll be in a store and I will hear a song, uh, maybe from the late 70s, I haven't heard in, you know, three decades, and, and it's in my head. I could, I could spit out the lyrics. I know everything about it. Uh, music affects us. Now, let me, let me give you an illustration of that. Anybody recognize this person? That man's name is John Wesley. John Wesley is one of the great preachers in the history of the English language. Uh, he preached especially in Great Britain, and then he preached in the colonial United States around the time of the Revolution, uh, Revolutionary War. And he was instrumental along with several other gifted preachers, Jonathan Edwards, uh, George Whitfield. John Wesley was instrumental in the Lord bringing about the First Great Awakening. He preached to millions of people, one of the greatest English preachers in history. So somebody raise your hand. Tell me your favorite quote from one of John Wesley's sermons. You know, one that you just kind of are musing on through the day. Or give me a paragraph. Anybody? No? All right. Unless you did your doctorate in church history with a focus on John Wesley, you've got nothing. That's okay. John Wesley had a kid brother named Chuck. Actually, Charles. Charles Wesley. Was also a gifted preacher, but we know him primarily as a songwriter. Now... See if you can quote for me some of the things that he said or that he wrote, and I'll wager that you probably can. Uh, join me. We'll sing just a little bit. See, see how far you can get with these lyrics. And can it be that I should gain an interest in the Savior? How, how did you do that? You know, remarkable. You didn't even study that. It just kind of comes to you naturally. We could do sing. Christ the Lord is risen today. Etc. All right. Or uh, arise my soul, arise. We won't sing this one, but maybe my favorite hymn. This, this is great. Arise my soul, arise. Talks about uh, the ministry of Christ on our behalf. Or we sing. He breaks the power of canceled sin. What's next? Yeah, that was great. <laughs> he sets the prisoner free. His blood can make the foulest clean. His blood availed for me. Jesus' lover of my soul is beautiful. Probably lesser known than it ought to be, uh, but beautiful. Uh, rejoice, the Lord is king. Your Lord and king adore. And uh, hark the herald. I use the last verse because it has so much good theology in it. Do you know this? Christ my highest have not adored. Christ the everlasting Lord. Late in time, behold him come, offspring of the virgins. Listen to this. Veiled in flesh, the Godhead see, hail the incarnate deity. Pleased as man, with man to dwell, Jesus our Emmanuel. Amazing. And it's all in your head without your even trying. Now, now those are very old songs. I could ask you to sing, uh, Jesus, thank you. Or I could ask you to sing, in Christ alone. Or I could ask you to sing, uh, yet not I, but Christ in me. And, and those words are in your head, they're in your memory, they're in your soul, and they affect you. And that's important because now we get to the scripture. Colossians 3.16 gives us a command, and it actually commands us to sing. We have this in kind of a, a cousin text in Ephesians 5.18 through 20 that command us to sing. And actually, the command to sing is the most frequent 
command in all of the Bible, especially in the Psalms where they'll just pile up, sing to the Lord, sing praises, sing to the Lord, sing praises. We're commanded to sing. Colossians 3.16, kind of the foundation for our quick talk this morning, says this. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom. Now, if that's true, if... If the Word of God is at home in your life, if you're thinking about it, meditating on it, memorizing it, the result will will be this, that with wisdom we will be teaching and admonishing one another. And then it says, in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. So if the Bible is at home in you, then it can't help but come out of you in your encouraging conversation uh, you should be talking about scripture. You know, what are you reading? What are you learning? You know, what did you learn in chapel? And you have times through the day where you kind of have to do that, like in your D groups. But it ought to be just a normal part of your life. The Bible comes in and then it comes out as you talk. But it also comes out as we sing. So the word of Christ dwells in us and then we sing. We sing to the Lord, but we also sing to each other and encourage each other. So I'm going to give you kind of a grid we ought to be singing excellent songs. Uh, don't let the word hymns trip you up. Hymns are, are just kind of doctrinal songs that we sing in praise to God. They might be old, they might be new. Uh, but as we're singing them, how do we choose those that are especially uh, valuable, exceptional? And I want to start with this idea. First of all, our songs should be biblical. That's an easy case to make. We just talked about it. The word of Christ dwells in you. And then you sing about it. And the more you sing about it, the more you're meditating on it. And, and it's dwelling in you. And it kind of has this, this beautiful cycle. We're singing the scriptures. I love to sing songs that are overtly biblical. Like you sing a line and you say, oh, that's from this passage. For example, we sang, um, and can it be? The last verse says, no condemnation now I dread. What's that? No condemnation now I dread. Well, that's Romans 8.1. There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. So it's not a generally true song. It's the Bible put to music. I, I call hymns rhyming rhythmic theology. They're, they're, the, the best ones are true. And when we sing them, we're reminding ourselves of the scriptures. Uh, a couple points I think. Good. I thought I was stuck. We got it. John Frame uh, writes a lot about ministry, about Christian music. He says, music in worship is one of God's best tools for getting the word into our hearts. So God uses music to help us to think about the scriptures. Martin Luther knew this. Now, in Martin Luther's day, you know, the great reformer, we celebrated the 500th anniversary of the Reformation a few years ago. Martin Luther did a lot of amazing things. He wanted Germans to have the Bible in their own language. And so he translated it, and and the Bible just set the world on fire. But he also wanted Germans to have songs in their own language. Prior to Martin Luther, uh, the Roman Catholic Church would have only the clergy sing. Only priests would sing, not normal church members. And they would sing in Latin so nobody knew what they were saying anyway. And Luther said, let's give them the Bible in their own language. Let's give them a hymnal in their own language. And many of them couldn't read. So they couldn't read the Bible, but they could remember songs and it put the Bible into their hearts. Uh, Matt Boswell, more, more recently, Matt Boswell, you'll know him from uh, writing songs like His Mercy is More or um, Come Behold the Wondrous Mystery. He says, our services should not separate singing from the word, but the church should hear the word through singing. 
Okay, I love preaching, and the Bible exalts preaching as uniquely powerful. Okay, but again, nobody hums sermons on their way out. And we shouldn't have two categories. There are churches that would never tolerate error from the pulpit. We expect the sermon to be, you know, absolutely scriptural. And you, you should think that way. When you get out and you're looking for a church, you need a church that teaches the Bible. And that's kind of the, the centerpiece of worship. But when we sing, we shouldn't change our standards. So we kind of sing stuff that's useless and, and you know, maybe emotional, but it's kind of content. Eh. We shouldn't sing bad things and then, and then expect really biblical preaching. We should be expecting that our, our songs like the preaching or, or like our prayers should be just chock full of scripture. And the fact that a song is called a Christian song doesn't guarantee it's going to have a lot of Bible in it. There are a lot of songs that, you know, they, they might have a catchy tune or a nice recording or, you know, a beat that you enjoy or whatever, but listen to the words and are they true? Are they biblical? Are they meaningful? They should be. So we let the word of Christ dwell in us, and then it comes out of us in our songs. This might seem redundant, but the second point is our songs should be doctrinal. And I'm saying not just generally biblical, but they should be full of doctrine. The late J.I. Packer says, It has been truly said, if you want to survey the full substance of the church's faith, you go to its hymns. Gordon Fee similarly says, Show me a church's songs and I'll show you their theology. Most people don't spend a lot of time reading their church's doctrinal statement. You should. It matters a lot. But the songs we sing are kind of, are kind of um, pocket-sized doctrinal statements. They're, they're pocket-sized creeds. They teach us what we believe. I'm going to give you another illustration of that. And uh, this one is a modern one. Uh, Matt Merker took an old hymn text called He Will Hold Me Fast, and he kind of revitalized it with a new tune, and he wrote a last verse. All right, there's a lot of repetition, He Will Hold Me Fast, which is encouraging and settling. Repetition's not a bad thing. The Psalms are full of it. But do you know what you just sang? Uh, the first line, for my life he bled and died, you sang about the substitutionary atonement. I could use a fancy word here because you know what vicarious means. You just sang about the vicarious atonement in one line. He didn't just die, but he died for me, for uh, my life, for my sins. When you sing justice has been satisfied, that's a quick reference to the doctrine of propitiation, that Jesus is the propitiation for our sins. He actually satisfied God's wrath. He absorbed it all so God doesn't have wrath to pour out on those who have uh, come to trust Christ as Savior. Raised with him to endless life, you're singing about Jesus' resurrection, but also his resurrection is accounted to us because we're united with him. So, so Romans 6 says that we have died with him, but we've also been raised with him to newness of life. Uh, endless life talks about regeneration, that we have life that exists now and will last for eternity. And then till our faith is turned to sight, talks about uh, the second coming, uh, heaven, you know, the fact that we will uh, be with him forever. And uh, there we go. So heaven, second coming. Now, you say, man, I didn't think about all that. One of my challenges to you, whether you're singing in church or listening to songs in the car, one of my challenges to you is to think about that, okay, to actually kind of engage your brain and listen to what the words say. And when you do, instead of just kind of mumbling along in chapel, you should, you should be affected by what you sing. 
You know, I, I know you come into chapel. I've, I, I've lived there. And, you know, you're worried about your next test or homework or, you know, maybe you have a date coming up. You're thinking about all these other things. And then they sing a song. If we're not thinking, it's, it's like we're taking the Lord's name in vain. We're just reciting rhymes, you know, like the Charlie Brown, wah, 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 wah. Don't do that with Christian music. Actually engage your brain and think about what you're singing. All right, we need to uh, hurry toward the end. Our songs should be uniquely Christian, not just, not just theistic, not just about God generally, uh, or like a lot of modern songs, not just about God and water, but, but they should be about Jesus and what he's done for us. They should be uniquely Christian. All right, so um, there's a man that was a music leader, actually started a music company back in the day named Edmund Lorenz. He says, Christian hymns should be genuinely Christocentric, Christ-centered. Uh, they should... They should respond to God's truth by especially singing about Jesus. That's the very heart of a Christian hymn. So the text, Colossians 3.16, doesn't just say let the Bible dwell in you. It says let the word of Christ dwell in you. The Bible is preeminently about Jesus Christ, and we ought to be singing songs that are uniquely Christian. Now, not every hymn we sing mentions Jesus by name. Great is thy faithfulness doesn't, and it's a great hymn. Use that. Um, Amazing Grace, which we heard this morning, doesn't actually mention Jesus by name. That's one reason why you'll see it in country music concerts or in a movie. You know, there's a there's a, a funeral scene. It's raining. They're holding black umbrellas, and there's bagpipes playing. Amazing Grace. They're they're not playing in Christ alone because in Christ alone is too overtly Christian to be accepted in the world around us. We need to sing songs that are so full of Christ that they almost offend people. Bob Coughlin. Uh, hymn writer for many years says, if most of our songs could be sung by Buddhists, Muslims, or Hindus, it's time to change our repertoire. We need to sing songs that are uniquely Christian. Let me give you an example of that. The Getty song, In Christ Alone, uh, I'm sure you use often, you sing. In Christ Alone has a line that says, for on the cross as Jesus died, say it with me, the wrath of God was satisfied. It's a big denomination in America, the PCUSA. It's a liberal Presbyterian uh, denomination. So they're not going to believe in the vicarious atonement. They're not going to believe in the inerrancy of Scripture. They liked in Christ alone, but they didn't like that line about God's wrath. They think, oh, God's not a God of judgment and wrath. So they came to uh, the Gettys and to Stuart Townend, who wrote the lyrics. They said, we'd like to publish this in our hymnal. But we don't like the line about God's wrath. How about if we change it to this? For on the cross as Jesus died, the love of God was magnified. All right, that, that works. The, the right number of syllables, the right accents. And it's actually true. The love of God was magnified the cross. They said, could we do that and publish it in our hymnal? And thankfully, uh, the writer said, no, we've written what we believe. You're not changing our song to get rid of the wrath of God, the propitiation. This is what we wrote. Well, that's a good thing because our songs should be uniquely Christian. If you're listening to songs that you could understand to be about Jesus or it could be about, you know, a boyfriend or girlfriend or whatever, it's probably not a great song. We should sing things that are uniquely Christian. I am running out of time. And uh, my daughter Esther says, Dad, whatever you do, don't go long. So, uh, a couple final things. We should sing songs that are Trinitarian. Not all of our songs will speak to the Trinity, but some should. You know, we, we do praise the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. 
And we should actually, on purpose, sing songs like that. So once in a while, um, you think of a, a newer song-ish, uh, There is a Redeemer. Thank you, O oh my Father, for giving us your Son and leaving your Spirit to the work on earth is done. Father, Son, and Spirit. Or um, Come Thou Almighty King is very intentionally Trinitarian. Holy, holy, holy. Uh, we should sing songs like that, and we too often don't. There's a new hymnal uh, from Master Seminary. It's a great hymnal, very intentional, very biblical. It's called Hymns of Grace. In their index, they have hymns on God the Father. There's 93. As you would expect, hymns on God the Son, I think it's 222. Hymns on the Holy Spirit, there are seven. And it's not because they don't believe in the Holy Spirit or they, you know, they didn't give it any thought. There's just not a lot of songs like that available and we ought to do better. We ought to be singing things on purpose, uh, reminding ourselves of Father, Son, and Spirit. When I was a student here, way back in the day, in the 90s, uh, we had church on campus, which wasn't great, uh, but we would sing with the organ the Gloria Patri. The first time I heard it, I'd gone to public school, I'd never heard music like that, and it would be very, you know, very high church, but it was glory be to the Father and to the Son and to the Holy Ghost. And we were singing a song that is 1,500 years old, and we're worshiping God, or the doxology, praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. We should sing things like that. Uh, music should be unifying, and you say, man, that, that's kind of crazy. Music's not generally unifying in my experience. No, not mine either, but it ought to be. If the topic of worship feels more like a call to arms than a call to prayer, we're not doing it right. And we should be singing together. You sing in church. You have a 90-something-year-old lady, and you have toddlers, and we're all doing it together. And you have high voices and low, and you, and you have harmony. And, you know, we, we all slow down together. We get soft together. We get loud together. Music should be unifying. Even Colossians 3, before it says to sing together, it says to live together, to love each other, to forgive each other. And then we sing I don't have time to build that out more, but singing together is uniquely powerful. And then just finally, a couple of bullet points. The second half of the book talks about how the Psalms are kind of a model for our hymns. Uh, the Psalms are an inspired hymnal. We should sing them. You know, literally, we should be singing Psalms. Um, the, the Psalms are written over about a thousand year period. We should sing ancient and modern songs. Candidly, if I'm in a church service, and every song that we sing is a Getty song or something written in my lifetime, I feel cheated. You know, let's sing Watson, Wesley, and let's sing, you know, a great song by maybe the Gettys or by City Light. That's fine, but, but there should be an intentional breadth. Uh, C.S. Lewis says we are in danger of being chronological snobs. We only do what's new. You know, I love that today we sang, Guide Me, O Thou Great Jehovah. And then tomorrow you might sing a new, a new biblical Christ in heaven. That's great, but it should span the eras. It should be diverse, not all happy. Some of them are lament. You know, do you feel the world is broken? And you say, we do. That's a lament, but then there's hope as well. Uh, emotive songs, you know, we, we, should, we should care. It should affect us. The Bible talks about singing where, where you know, they're, they're making a loud noise or they're, they're lifting their hands or they're clapping. It, it should affect you. Don't just let it rush by you. Uh, personal, beautiful, doxological, big word means should be, be glorifying to God. Esther says, Dad, finish with this. Finish with, so what? You know, what difference does it make? What difference does it make? Most of you, you might be saying, well, 
I'm not going to be a pastor or a song leader. I don't even choose songs for my society meetings. So how does this affect me? It affects you because music is, a, is the soundtrack of your life. So again, you might listen to classical or you might listen to, you know, your favorite genre. And I'm okay with that generally, but those things aren't feeding your soul. What if you took the next month? My family will sometimes say, let's not listen to other stuff. For the next month, let's listen to Jesus music. We just call it Jesus music. Let's listen to music that points our attention to Christ and to what he's done. And my challenge to you is to fill your life with songs that help you grow as a Christian. Listen to the lyrics. See if they're true, biblical, doctrinal, Christian, you know, rooted in the truth. And, and if they're driving your attention to God, where sometimes you're driving and you're just like, wow, you know, thank you, Jesus, for the blood applied. Wow, thank you. Or, or you're jogging. I've, I've had times, my neighbors probably think I'm nuts. I'm jogging slowly, and I, I hear a Christian song, and, and I have tears in my eyes, and I'll actually lift my hands as I'm jogging, and it's a spectacle. But it's building up my soul. Students, whether you love music or tolerate music, use music. It's God's gift to you. It's powerful. And use it for the good of your soul. And in the process, you'll bring great glory to God as well. That's kind of a snapshot of what the book's about. Uh, and if you never read it, just enjoy God's gift of music and use it for good, for God's glory. And grow yourself through the wonderful truths of Scripture set to melody. Thank you, Lord, for the truth of the Bible. Thank you for Jesus, our Savior. And thank you for giving us the gift of music so that we can sing the truth to you and to one another. Uh, use this in our lives for your glory. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you.